Fort Roberstacher Hardwick, I grant of a truck hand of Lurny Bellidish, and put the Kale at Tirtog of Ognusuk with his air in Clashton Hoskola, Palia Arke. You're very welcome to episode 31 of Folklore Fragments, the podcast from the National Folklore Collection at University College Dublin. My guest today is sculptor Aidan Hart, whose recent work, The Puka of Ennis Diamond, a publicly commissioned sculpture uh, for the town of Ennis Diamond in County Clare in the west of Ireland, caused a great deal of controversy and made headlines nationally and internationally over the summer being denounced as a pagan idol and sinister statue. Uh, so for this episode, we'll examine the controversy and different opinions regarding the sculpture, along with taking a closer look at the figure of the Puka himself as he appears in folk tradition uh, by drawing on our usual mix of sources, literary and archival, as we go. So, Aidan, Fotterstach. Well, thanks having. for having me. Pleasure. Um, you're based in Dublin, but you're from Kilkenny, aren't you? Yeah. Um, so I've been here for... Um, Working in Dublin for about a decade now. Yeah. And uh, before that, I was studied uh, sculpture in Florence, Italy. And then before that, I was working in animation in Kilkenny, mm-hmm. in Cartoon mm-hmm. Saloon. A lot of your work has taken inspiration from like classical mythology and, and yeah. folklore as well. Yeah, my, my stuff would be um, based on, like my first collection, for example, was based on Dante's Inferno. Kind of as I came back from uh, Florence, I was in that, I don't know, medieval headspace. And so I was uh, reading that book as I was over there and uh, as I was learning sculpture. But the kind of characters that were um, appealing to me were the kind of fantastical uh, mythological creatures that Dante encounters, like the Minotaur, the Senator, um, the, or, and uh, the Harpy. And these kind of like um, half man, half, half animal creatures, figures like the Minotaur, um, for example, they really do say something uh, that I don't, speaks to me about the duality of, of man and mm-hmm. our, the, our battle to um, control our bestial nature. Opposing forces or whatever, like yeah. and so on. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah so and it's interesting as a technical exercise to make, make those kind of sculptures, but then they're very, um, regardless of how well or bad, how badly they're made, they're these iconic figures. How did you become interested in the figure of the Puka or decide to set about sculpting the Puka? Well, I don't know. I suppose I have a... I like, um, I like slightly uh, dark subjects. Mm-hmm. And he is, he is a bit of a, um, a, a, a... one of the darker characters in Irish folklore. Mm. Like, he's not like... Mm, I don't know, the leprechaun or something. Mm-hmm. Even the leprechauns have... You know they are. They're not. There's an element of trickery, and there's kind of yeah. But there's more. There's even more of a an element of trickery with the the puka. Mm-hmm. Like he's a he's a troublemaker, basically. I think you were you you described in um, you were talking about I think Halloween or something, and you said a lot a lot of the times with the fairies. Although it's not like this um, twee Victorian uh, wish wish granter. It's with the with the fairies, they're not necessarily good or bad, but they are they are when they appear, it's a disturbance. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that's what the puka is like. He's he's it, like if you've encountered a puka, like you're going to remember that mm-hmm. encounter. Yeah, it's a strange kind of flash of the fantastic into the mundane or the ordinary when you're kind of like lots of the the situations where people meet the puka are on say back roads and lanes or coming over the natural landscape walking home late mm. at night or something like mm. that. Um, and then they'll meet this shadowy figure and it's always and it's described in all the different sources you know there are so many different variations it sometimes can take the body of a horse or a goat um, or a light sometimes or just this black kind of creature um, there are different mushrooms named after the puka as well mm. so they're kind of strange 
kind of snails, I think. Snails, yeah. So they're like strange kind of growths, and and um, but then the puka's behavior is always unruly. There's an element of kind of misbehavior. It's slightly feral. It's slightly grotesque. It's slightly dangerous. It can be threatening, but it's not morally ill or morally evil or something like that. It can protect. It can it can cause disturbance. But there's an element of mischief and humor at it as well. But it's not a very well behaved. It's a kind of shadowy, um, mischievous. Yeah, it's 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 um, a figure of uh, chaos. I would say. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. that's what it appeals to me. Yeah. Um, I I saw it as something like a. Um, something in we probably should say like loosely what happened which was um the the nature of the controversy so um just to um sketch it in briefly i um uh, was commissioned to make a, a sculpture for um Anna simon and claire and i made um i i did did a sculpture of the puka and then um subsequently there was um a furore with some people in in the village um saying it was a uh not welcome that it was a, a a pagan thing that was ugly that it was uh, not reflective of any time culture and then at the moment the the project is paused and uh, i'm still waiting to know whether i can cast it or not but one of the words that kept on coming up when when the the story broke was that it was a pagan thing mm-hmm. and although i th- i found out it was a little bit um i thought the word pagan was being used in the um you know, maybe the 1950s version where it's anything that's not, you know, good old-fashioned Irish Roman Doctor Catholicism. Catholic, yeah. But it was, it, it did strike me as funny because there is something pagan about, like, there is something pagan about all Irish folklore. Mm-hmm. But, the like, the word pagan comes from uh, pagus in Latin and that, that refers to the countryside. Countryside, yeah. And it's like the word heathen, mm-hmm. heat. Um, and the puka, I think, is, is this... Um, creature who you, like you, like as you said you don't find him in urban settings you find him wherever civilization isn't he's not like yeah. so he's on the boundary the place where um, rules laws uh, and uh, all those uh, all those um, things that you know hold us in check mm. where they they don't apply mm-hmm. that's where you find things like the puka and you know maybe the far Darik or whatever yeah, these kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. Um, troublesome owl. Yeah, but they're they're I don't know rebels I guess of um, yeah of yeah that definitely that's how he seems to come across but it's it's like it's um, there's an element I think of, of a certain amount of discomfort in even some of the descriptions that have been that have been been mentioned in the, in the headlines like I have some news pieces here but I mean it made headlines nationally and internationally um, and the response to it like when I when I kind of looked into the response to it. It, it, did it seem to really kind of take off after the parish priest there kind of gave out about it? Mm. That that was really. I mean, it happened. That was it happened, it happened quick, quickly because, um, uh, like, I was making the the sculpture um, over over the last lockdown. So after Christmas, I heard I got the commission. I was delighted. We made the armature. I I was uh, set about making it, mm. and you know, I mean there's ideal conditions to make a piece of artwork and that's when the entire country is shut down so i was there in my studio happy as larry the um the arts officer of um or the arts um council of uh, claire they were just leaving me off because you know they were happy to they knew what they were getting i had done like a a little model of the the puka and it it um they thought it fit their brief and so i was making making it away and it's a two meter clay statue and then um, uh, it's just uh, then 
I had it finished and we got to the point of molding it. So like for a bronze, this is eventually going to be a bronze sculpture if it ever gets um, cast. But so you make a clay, a clay sculpture and then you make a mold of it. And then that mold is in the foundry um, made into bronze, basically. So what we have now, we got to the point of making the, the mold. And then at that point, the, um, the Arts Council got, got in touch with me and said, Aidan, hold on a second. Uh, there's been a bit of a, a, a complaint I'm about it. Complaint, yeah. And so at that point, um, we just basically uh, pressed pause. And so uh, that pause has lasted over summer and mm-hmm. continues now. Mm-hmm. And hopefully um, next month, there'll be uh, things will start moving again as there's a sort of a, an inquiry going, starting up again. And it kind of seemed to develop into a, like, was, was there an element of a, a rural versus urban divide or almost, or... Because as I began to look into it, it seemed as though the people in the town weren't so much even criticising your artwork or you as an artist, but they were criticising the the sense of a lack of consultation, the sense that something hadn't been communicated or the sense that a feeling that this is being foisted on people or something mm. like that. And then that there are people from out from maybe, you know, cosmopolitan, progressive urbanites or something versus these kind of rural ignorant tickles mm. you know what I mean there was this other the dynamic. latte drinkers versus the pint drinkers yeah, playing playing itself out on social media as well oh yeah, yeah. Kind of the, the, you know the toilet society's toilet wall kind of the messages written back and forth and so on but there was a sense maybe that like that as I as I looked at it it seemed like it was less to do with a reluctance around certain aspects of our tradition although that was that was present in some of the quotes like Mary Kenny right in the Irish Catholic Abbot here was talking about um um, Father Willie Cummins who denounced the sculpture of a pagan monstrosity from the altar and so she was kind of talking about this traditional bogeyman fighting the, the children and so on and, and evil fairies or whatever but there seemed to be a sense that it was maybe more of a tension between the community and then an officialdom and, and local mm. authority and, and, and well, it's that dynamic at play maybe yeah well. no there definitely is but like it's multifaceted because uh, originally for sure there was people saying they had problems with the, the artwork and saying it's uh, ugly if not downright diabolical and then and there is an element of the grotesque about it like the, there is the, but like, there is and but to me this to me um the word grot or grotesque is not um you know it's not a dam- it's damning word. defense because y- y- because y- I, I like i do i do think there is an element of the grotesque about it because he's a what would you call yeah, it an archetypal kind of shabby yeah, ar- 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 that's, that's figure, the yeah. word i was striving for but like he's so he is supposed to be um a little bit dangerous yeah and um and he's 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 happy to be dangerous, and so that grotesque stuff is something that you find in you know uh, gargoyles on cathedrals yeah, yeah, yeah. or I don't know shielding gigs or something like that, and it's it's part of art, and it's not like not not there's a I don't know a sort of um, a simplistic idea about sculptures that they all have to be you know of Christie ring holding the cup, mm-hmm. looking great, mm-hmm. and you know that's fine that kind of monument in art, but. It doesn't all have to be that. Mm-hmm. Art can be, it can be um, an exploration of not just the the the, the wonderful and um, mm-hmm. uh, simple things in life. It can be an exploration of the, the complexities mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. even of violence or uh, unhappiness or tragedy or chaos in, in the case with the puka. There's on that, there's a, there's a quote here from an article in Euro, Euronews. They contacted me about this as well. Mm. Um, back during the summer but it just to speaks to what you're saying there where it says um it's it's too strong an image this is a local person describing it and that it's basically that it's kind of 
frightening. There's an element of disturbance about it. Yeah, it's but, it's it's an intense piece of art. Yeah, and, and like, I mean, <laughs> I, that, that was my aim That's to make that. But there's there's a piece I want to read you. This this is a book, an amazing book, uh, The Eldritch World by Nigel Panic. This came out just recently from Arcani Europa. But he's got a really interesting piece that speaks to kind of what we're describing here, I think, when he talks about the word a mon- the monster in the popular imagination. Mm. And the word monster even, essentially, as, as the, the root term meaning something that reveals itself, shows, even in demonstrate, you know what I mean? That there's a connection between the monster shows and reveals, mm. but mm. in this uncomfortable way. This is a, a piece from Nigel Panic here. A monster, as in demonstrate, is called just that because it shows us itself and more. It demonstrates it pre- its presence, revealing something that is not normally expected but which nevertheless cannot be ignored. Its unnatural form evokes and recalls other states of being that rarely impinge on everyday consciousness. Even when it does have external existence, the monster is an outward form of that which is within, and that is how we interpret its presence. Monsters appear in accordance with the state of mind of the observer. Evanescent in the melancholy half-light, monstrous fear falls on us like a hailstorm, and we quail at the terror of menace. Swarming things that are all legs and wings crowd in on us, making it difficult to breathe, like those demonic metamorphoses painted by Bosch, Ensor, Clark, and others. These images are really at home only amid the stifling alienation of psychosis in mind-forged manacles bound. They lurk like long-legged land crabs, ready to grab and never let go their baleful grip. Mindlessly malignant, monsters mirror the merciless raging beast that boils alongside love within the human heart, secretly releasing greed and domination, mayhem and murder. Often perverse, like the three birds of Rhiannon who sang the living to death and the dead back to life, the monster always does the opposite of what is expected. I thought it was just fitting, mm. or an interesting piece that speaks to some mm. of the, the slightly feral and uncomfortable nature of these kind of creatures and yeah. the place that they take or the reflection of our own minds or our own impulses as human beings that they that they express and manifest basically. yeah and the puka is that in yeah he is that i mean and if you if you read irish folklore you come across this um this attempt to navigate the fact that life isn't always happy yeah you know people die people have accidents and mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know w- uh, wickedness exists mm-hmm. and um uh, winter winter comes yeah yeah cycles there are different cycles and archetypal structures and even the idea of the shadow you know the shadow versus the persona that which is maybe rejected or, or whatever denied yeah. so how, how do you how do you um, how does an artist like engage with that I mean mm. to, to me it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like a, a hanging offence to to try and render a, yeah it's some, something like the puka but it is it is it isn't going to be a you know a pretty picture yeah it isn't going to be like a, a you know, a, a vase full of roses around. Yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose on that, with that in mind, like we should maybe move to start to look at what is the book? What are we looking at? What are we talking about when we when what we think the about hell the book? Is a well, yeah, basically, essentially, yeah, because it's it's quite an amorphous figure. Um, there's a lot of maybe mystery in a way is too strong, but there's a lot of there's a lack of definition around even the term, the mm. origins of the word. Is it from Old English? Is mm. it from Old Irish? Is it Scandinavian? There isn't agreement on the etymology, excuse me, of it really. It never takes one set form. It, it, there's always these, the, or always these local kind of variants. Um, but the main characteristic, I suppose, that it is largely associated with um, the night, with Halloween or the autumn or with Halloween in particular, um, with the rural landscape 
and with, I suppose, frightening or abducting wayfarers, mm. but also sometimes protecting wayfarers from a worse fate of the supernatural. Mm. And also, there are certain references in parts of Leinster that you find to the puka as a guardian spirit, a house spirit, which ties in, strangely, interestingly, with, with some um, international versions and, and, and um, expressions of house spirits in Latvia and Lithuania as well, called pukis and pukas. November night, that was always called puka November night, Pooh and That'll be Halloween night. Halloween night. Pooh and call it November day, that November night. Yeah. But that was supposed to be the Pooh and we go to school. But all fruit yeah. had to be picked off trees. You couldn't eat them after November night because. The poker was after going around desecrating him. Yeah, be, and the poker was to go, supposed to go around and spray him. Yeah, old me could you say, don't let him slow the poker was pissed on him November night, poisoning, the rotten. And then he was supposed to go around doing tricks, you see, or tormenting people. Did you ever hear what he was but like, the puka? We always took him to be something like a big animal. Yeah. Could fly or move about, the puka, the devil. Yeah. And do you see that as that being like the word puka being something akin to ghost? Or do you see it as, as something the same as this um, character who waylays people and takes them away to Funny, it's land. interesting. It depends. Yeah, that's, I'd never really thought about it. It depends on the context of the language in which I'm using it. Obviously, when you say it in Irish or English, the pronunciation exact, is exactly the same. Well, in, in parts of Ireland, it's called Puck, and part in England as well. Puck, there's there's a um, um, Shakespeare um, mentions Puck in the Midsummer Night's Dream. And um, it's, it's like, because it's Puck. Yeah, because I always thought um, Shakespeare's Puck, who's kind of like Pan, um, was the same as the Puck Fair. Or something, something similar, and probably they are. But like puck, the puck fair is puck as a goat, is it? Puck as a goat, yeah. But then the puka sometimes appears as a goat as well. He does. So there's like, um, there, there are, there, there. Are, I suppose there are different. Like if you, if you, if I think about the word in Irish, puka, p-u father c-a, I think a ghost. Mm. I don't necessarily think of the creature who takes people on their back. I think Casper the friendly puka. Essentially, it could be, or Tyve shows is a kind of spectre or something. But puka, I would think, is a very kind of generic. Uh, almost amorphous term for a ghost in general mm. but then when it's used in the in the uh, Hiberno-English language variant P-O-O-K-A I would think specifically of this creature mm. so if people you know if, if, if someone's talking in Irish about um, Perth and the Bookie which we'll play later on I would understand it as kind of the, the song the tune of the ghosts yeah and it and it is quite and then open there, in there, that there, way there are some uh, um things in the in your archive here where it's it's a, a vengeful ghost so some guy who's killed and then he's he's standing at the crossroads um waylaying people and he's basically just uh, Ca- causing a, harm a, a chap who's come back from the grave and they call him a puka, a puka yeah he's yeah. not this shapeshifter that yeah. i guess uh, is it's, my version it's quite open in that way like well and again so it's quite an amorphous thing but it, it, there are, there are general characteristics but like if you look at the even the, the word, like there's a couple of studies. There's not a huge amount of studies done on it, um, but it's been described as it's a cultural. It's interesting because it's a cultural word, a cultural word. Um, so which this is Aaron Sebo or Sebo, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, but it's described in 
Um, see what's article is a cultural word, a word which potentially carries with it cultural metadata, legends and beliefs. And then the, the article goes on to explain there are three main theories concerning the origin of Puka, that its origin is Celtic or Germanic or Scandinavian. Skeet favours the first. In the etymological English dictionary, he suggests that the word is from the Irish Puka, though the dictionary of the Irish language only comments that the word is common in folklore. So Karl Marstrander, the Norwegian scholar, uh, on the other hand, argues that English itself is the origin and that the Puka legends were brought to Ireland from England, an assertion accepted by Dasun Branach. We'll look at his article later on, I have that here. So Skeet, Nas and Van Geldern, all experts in Old English in various ways, favour a Celtic origin, while Marstrander and Branach, both experts in Irish culture, favour an English origin. You find the word like Puck appears in this thin band along the south of England hmm. and into Wales. Um, and then in Cornish you have the Pucca or Bucca as well. Mm. So, so like the, and Pixie. The, the, the Tudor plantation or something like that. It's not like really known. Like, like the, the suggestion in some instances is that, is that it appears from from the from Old Irish or even a pre-Gaelic language that was taken into Old Irish. But then the problem is that it doesn't appear in any of the Old Irish kind of glosses until yeah. much later. Yeah. And then there's a suggestion that maybe that's because there was a reluctance on behalf of the monks and scholars who were Christians who are writing the earliest literature to, to reference the, mm. the, the, the kind of supernatural figures or ghouls or ghosts. But they but they they often I mean, you know, they will often add caveats at the end, like at the thon, the whoever the transcriber of the thon kind of describes like here's this um this kind of fanciful, um, blasphemous, you know, uh, tale and but I'm recount I'm not, but I'm going to recount it here mm. anyway. So it's hard. It, it, it seems strange that it would appear so early on in Irish and then disappear for so long and then reappear later. But yeah, it's it's because it, like my my impression was that he was his heyday, as it were, was the nineteenth century, and then coming into the twentieth century, I don't think many people, like uh, the people of this generation, would have necessarily known the Puka. I think the tradition seems to have kind of died out from living tradition, except as a. Well, not in all instances, but like we do have, I suppose it's worth talking about the sources. Like we have 19th century literary sources, people like Thomas Croft and Croker and Lady Wilde. Um, then we have slightly later kind of stories. Look at Patrick West and Joyce's discussion of Irish place names and the references to the Puka in place names. Then we have the archival sources here, the manuscript collections. There was a questionnaire sent out on child bogies in 1943, which is fascinating. I'll, I'll read an example from that now in a second. And then in 1988, there was a questionnaire sent out on the Puka as well. But a lot of the time, it seems that... Specifically about the Puka. Specifically about the Puka, yeah, yeah. But it seems that the that it, that maybe it was viewed as a something to scare children with, mm-hmm. um, but that a kind of a more, what would you say, a belief in it kind of had dwindled, basically, in yeah, a sense. Yeah. And, and that it wasn't as... I'll, I'll show you this manuscript now. Well, you, you do one of the things I, my, like he's to, to me, his his main uh, personality, as I, I see it, is a trickster. And th- in, in that sense, he's kind of a, a figure that has international analogues to, you know, the raven in North America or um, uh, Pan in, in Greece yeah. uh, or Puck in, Puck in England. Um, and that like for most of the stories, when it's not just they're talking about a ghost, he does seem to be this kind of... Um, uh, sort of a benign, a benign kind of, a, a benign kind of uh, mischievous fairy who's um, basically he's going to uh, punish, pun, like give, give, put a scare up to drunkards and take yeah. them fa- to fairyland or something. But it's they're kind of humorous, I would say. That most of the stories, yeah. I, there's not too many of the stories that 
well um where it's it's you know evil incarnate no there, there, like there aren't no and that's an important thing to, to to understand as well like you know it's again and it's something that you find with with conceptions of the fairy host in general that there's not this evil in any kind of christian moral sense to it but they're a confusing force or, mm. or a mm. dangerous force in the sense that uh, yeah, he'll he'll abduct you, take you on his back, and ride around the country with you in mm. the dead of night, and you'll be terrified, going through hedges and ditches and all, mm. all sorts of stuff like this. Um, but in the context, when you read this, is a, I'll read a piece from this manuscript from 19, 1943 that was sent out by the commission, a questionnaire on the topic of childhood bogies. And some of this is 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 much. You can see that it is much more frightening. It's specifically used to scare children mm. if they're being naughty, or whatever. So briefly, just the questionnaire itself. It says, is any bogey mentioned in your district as a threat to children? So when they're naughty, to prevent them going to dangerous places like wells or lofts, to prevent them interfering with animals, crops or tools, to get them in before dark or induce them to sleep? Is the bogey supposed to have a particular dwelling place? Are living, are living persons ever mentioned as bogies? Who, why? Um, are bogies used nowadays as in the childhood of older people? If not, please answer all questions for both bogies of former times and those of today. Here are some examples. On Bo Bawa. Bawmaw, Bogeyman, Bootyman, Umpuka, Nulog, Kalyach Naviaklafada, that's the Hag of the Long Teeth, Johnny Nod, the Sandman, Sean Garrick, <laughs> Raleigh, Mole Shaughnessy, Sir Phelim O'Neill, Wee Popes, the Fenians, etc. The names are deadly. Hmm. So this is this is um and then just a brief account, okay, answering these questions. This is from Westmeath, um, from um, Christina Flanagan. Uh, in Moat in County Westmeath in 1943 and she writes so that the bogey essentially was used to prevent children going to a well uh, you'd say old mole flop is waiting for them or a child out after dark will be changed into a spider by the puka or to get children to bed the sand the sand men are coming and the bogey man is in the yard with his wheelbarrow to take them to the mountainside hmm. right so they're like here's another example a small man with a hat pulled down over his eyes is called a bogey man or a little wizened woman is set to come out of the hills so they're like there are scarier images for children, basically, but the yeah. puka is is bound up in those, not in these larger or, or kind of longer form legends, but as something to frighten people. The puka's gonna get kind of yeah. Gashed. He's he's um he's uh, there's no rhyme or reason to what is like why like he's just a I don't know like a, a waterfall or some kind of force of nature yeah, that you don't want to tangle with. Essentially, I'm gonna play a a, a piece of um an audio recording from our sound archive now. And this is Jim Delaney. He's chatting to Willie Rourke in 1968 um, in Roscommon. And he's describing here in this tape how the puka was used, stories the puka were used to frighten children. So we'll listen to this now. Uh, now, Bill, we, we were talking about, about uh, how they used to frighten the children long ago. Yeah. So could you tell me what, what they used to say? A time ago, when the old people be around the fire, where there'd be a lot of children, well... There might, might be two or three families of children around the boat playing and yeah. in it for an hour and then they'd all go. But the old people would be telling ghost stories about where they seen the poker and such an old person, an old man coming up the road with a big stick under his arm and a big whisker on him, yeah. going to bring you off. Then they tell you after November night, yeah. No one would be cut out, any child would be cut out after that. The poker would bring him off, stick his two horns into him and carry him off. Yeah. Well, then they were telling them that no one had ate slows yeah. after November night, that the poker used to come and make his nuisance on them. I see. Hmm. <laughs> 
on the same with the blackberries. Mm. But the reason that warned the children so much about the slows was, do you see, they knew that they were eating too much of them and they were afraid that they'd do them harm and they wanted to frighten them rightly about yeah. it. So they wanted to frighten them rightly about it, right, he's saying. So, like, that's, that's, a, that's interesting that he, put, he puts an, ex, an explanation of the tradition at the end of it there. Yeah, that's, it's used specifically to stop, to influence children's kind of behaviour. That's definitely one thing you find. This is another another piece in the Sound Archive. This is Patricia Lysett, um, who was on the podcast before, talking about the Banshee. Hmm. And this is where she's interviewing Jenny McGlynn. She's um, the Clare, Clare woman. Patricia is from Clare, yeah. And she's interviewing Jenny McGlynn here. And, and Jenny is basically saying that the puka is just used as, as a, again, a bogey to scare children, basically. Did you ever hear the puka? I've only heard it in, in, in the way of frightening children. Like you know, what? People saying, come on out and get in, or the puka will take you. But I don't think there's anything solid in it. You know, it's just mothers threatening their children to get them in over the dark. And it's interesting because then in that conversation, it's really interesting, she goes on uh, to talk with the devil mm. and then Aunt Patricia asks her, what would you do if you met the devil? And Jenny gets quite scared. You know, mm. She's like, oh God, I just just thought of it as kind of really starts to frighten her. And they're describing that. So there's a totally different response in mm. as far as the level of... of well, it's, of it belief, seems right? like a cinnamon with uh, bogeyman or in, in that sense. Yeah, but, but there are, but then, then there are this whole other body of legends around the puka which yeah. you can look at as well yeah they're well, like the and as a what would you call it they're like these moralistic stories where uh, a, hard, a hard drinking gambling man comes to a not a bad end but he gets a fright that puts him on the on the straight, on, and, narrow. On the straight and narrow and that would be the the one that I love is Croker even though Croker is um He's one of these nineteenth-century. Yeah, I love Crocker as well. I love his stuff as well. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's kind of there's a bit of blarney to it, but um, it's good old crack all the same. And you know, in a sense, these these early nineteenth-century guys are closer to the source than we are, regardless. You know, um, temporarily anyway. And so there's there's something in that, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, they 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 lived. You know, they didn't live in a you know this electronic age, so there was yeah. there was something to that. But then um, I came across a version of Croker's story in the archive. And the question then, and this is a, like a classic story where uh, the puka um, meets, a, meets a, a gambler and he takes him away to fairyland. Um, but the question is, was that story, um, which is told, I think, by a child, was that story um, regurgitated from a literary version or was it? Could have been. I'd have like to have. I'd have to, to read it or have a look at it. But yeah, it could have been. I mean, you find sometimes in in the manuscript collections here there are wholesale um, transcriptions from published sources into the uh, that are then presented as items of tradition. It's quite rare, but it happens. Then you'd have examples where, um, say, storytellers learn stories from books and then mm. they become part of the tradition. So the whole question of the orality of folk tradition versus the literary tradition is a kind of chicken egg. The two are pulling on each other all the time. Mm. It may have been that it was something in the oral tradition that, uh, I suppose, uh, just there are other variants and versions of it, but it took the same form. It's quite common to have stories around gamblers or drinkers coming home late at night or people who are kind of out rambling, calling to houses, um, or people coming back from wakes. Basically, anyone who's... The, the basic understanding that you know the, the day is for the living and the night is for the yeah, dead. Yeah. And then also the sense that, that the ordered commune of the town 
is it is it also a place for the living or a place for the human realm and then the disordered kind of chaos of of nature in a way or or nature isn't isn't controlled by it doesn't bear then, the mark and, of human and, hands in the same way and then and so there's that's a, where make these things there's a version um where it's talking about uh you know prophylactics that you can take to um protect yourself and that's like the classic one of carrying a nail in your pocket or something that and i guess in this or the black-handed knife which is in 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 other ghost stories and i guess i mean the way i would gloss that is that it's metallurgy means civilization means yeah the the power of the blacksmith iron was was a huge like you protect often often people protect themselves against supernatural influence with iron but yeah horseshoes um nails the use of spurs when someone's been taken off by the puka we'll look at that later on um so the role or the, the idea of iron as manifesting a certain kind of uh influence over or magic power of its own that can counteract the disorder disordering forces of the other or whatever that's really common it's a really common idea so again with these sorts of narratives you'll find there's a lot of kind of variation and picking and choosing or taking motifs and bits and bobs from other legends and mm. and injecting them into these as well just to serve whatever purpose either a moralizing tone or a humorous one or or whatever it is um so there, there are a lot of kind of different i suppose well the spurs is obviously it's iron but then it's kind of a hilarious um image just getting up on the puka and uh make it bossing him around and make it, making him a pet yeah gaining control or i mean there's look here this is an example here this is from from larry johnny connell sean o'connell's book and sean o'connell was um Seamus of the Larga collected from him extensively. He says, We often heard the old people who were before us in this world saying that there were pukas, and they would not harm anyone but would frighten them. The puka would get a man on his back, and when he was on his back, would race over the tops of cliffs, frightening the man riding on him. And when the puka was tired of going around with him, he would bring him back again to the place he found him. All he would do then was let him go. But people nowadays won't admit there is such a thing. But there is always some such thing, no matter what people say. <laughs> It was said the puka could take any shape he wanted. He could make a man of himself, and he could make a dog or a horse or a cow of himself. It used to be said that it was at harvest time the puka was most often seen, running among the haycocks, gambling and sporting by himself. Another legend then, regarding the puka. Long ago there was a man who was, who was away from home, and it was late at night when he was coming home. There was a quarry hole beside the road, and as he was going past it, someone inside the hole called to him. He stood. He was very startled because it was very late at night. The person in the hole spoke to him and asked him to come in and join him for a while. And you'll be in no danger, said he. And he went in, as he does. You're walking home in the pitch black and some little boys because of a hole. Get in. You'll be quite safe. Uh, In he goes. I am the puka, said he. And three groups of the airy host, that's the the fairy host, the airy host, are coming now. And they would meet you, he said, and you wouldn't know what they would do to you. The man was a short time in the hole when the first group went past, and the second group after that, and the third group after that again. Get out now, said the puka, and go home, and you will be in no danger until morning, said he. If you had met those ones on the road, you could have been in in the way of one or other of them, and you wouldn't know what they would do with you. Mm. There's a sense where the puka kind of saves the man. Yeah, and it's a bit Daniel O'Rourke. There's another version where... um, a man is say taken in to kind of a ditch or whatever by the puka and I think there's a version of the wild hunt kind of comes mm. comes racing past mm. and it's the sense that you know 
this, this, this spirit is protecting you from this worst fate, basically. But to talk about the spurs, you mentioned spurs there. Another, another legend from Sean O'Connell. A certain fisherman was fishing for rockfish once. In the evening, he was going home with a strop of rockfish. A puka met him at the top of the cliff and turned himself into a horse and put him riding on him. Off he went over the cliffs and he would put his head out over the high cliffs to frighten him. He spent the night like that, going to all the most dangerous places and he left him back in the same place when he tired of it. One day after that, the fisherman went to the same place again to fish and he put a row of hooks on his heels in case he met the puka again. Hmm. He touched them like horseman's spurs. When evening drew near, he made a halter of the fishing line for the puka. The puka met him the second time. He himself caught the puka, put the fishing line over his head like a halter and started to ride him. He drove him wherever he wanted to go and he kept putting his heels with the hooks like spurs to the puka's side, sides so that the puka was shedding blood from the pricks of the hooks. The lad got tired of riding and let him go. Oh, Next day he went to fish in the same place. The puka was there again that evening and the lad seized him again and asked him if he had those sharp little spikes on him which he had the night before. He said he had. Oh, I give you up. You won't see me again, said the puka. And he vanished from his sight. The descendants of that lad are known as Mintergeron, the spike family, ever since. And that part of the cliff is known as Nageron, the spikes. Mm. You see in that though, he says, when the puka says, and he asked him if he had those sharp little spikes on him. He doesn't ask him if he has iron, iron spurs. You know, there's, again, it's a sense you don't say, yeah. or that they won't say. It's like the Scottish play. They won't, exactly, yeah. But there's, there's a sense that fishermen will have the same thing on, on, on out at sea in fishing. You shouldn't say... Uh, you shouldn't mention a priest by name or say the word priest or a woman or a fox or a rat. There, there are certain kind of taboo words. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's like a, a ritual kind of taming of... Because um, there the, the, the puka is tamed, essentially, or domesticated to, yeah, to an extent. Yeah, or, or kind of conquered and then or, yeah, kind of neutralized in a way. Like There's another piece of audio here, an interesting one, which it doesn't mention the spurs specifically, but, it me- it, but it's the same kind of narrative. It's the man who's taken off on his back. And he's told there's a, a magic word that you say, mm-hmm. and you prod your thumb into the into the animal, and it has the same effect. So there's a disenchanting effect, basically. What did you hear about the puka? I did. What did the puka do? The puka is supposed anyone that wants slows to pull them before that night. Yeah. That if they didn't pull them before that night, he's supposed to shake all the slows and they can't be used. I see. You understand now? Yeah. So, there was supposed to be a puka. Everyone was saying, what's a puka? Yeah. And what class is he? Did anyone ever see him? Is he in the shape of a dog? Or what? No. These old people said he's in the shape of an ass. A black ass. But now there's no puka this many a year. And what happened to him? Well, I'll tell you what happened to him. This fella, he, the puka would come behind you and he'd run his head right in under your two legs and he'd hate you back at him. And away he'd start. And he'd tear you through bushes and he'd tear you through the ditches and you'd get all tore at him and he'd fling you up when he'd think you had enough of it. But this fella, at Tannerate, he was up on his back and he had a good soup of drinking. And he come to this ditch and the puka tore out as the puka he was like in the shape of a black ass, but he yeah. tore out through the ditch. And he got out and he got such a turn. He said it was a word that was used, spudging a gyro. 
and give them a prod if your left hand or your, your thumb on the side. And he said, spudging a hero, and he was pegged off of the puka. Well, then everyone had it, and the puka hadn't one bit of use in getting under your legs because you showed out spudging a hero when he take the feet of going, and he had to fling you off. I see. And I see. that word is some sort of Irish, and I don't yeah, understand. Irish, I don't know what it is. What is the word? Spudging the hero. And it's just a nonsense word. It's just a, it's just a nonsense. It sounds like just a nonsense word. That's a great, great Work out what it is. Yeah, but it's the same kind of thing. It's like a disenchanting mm. effect on the on this. And um, I want to just take a look at some of the. This is Patrick Weston Joyce because one of the one of the suggestions that was made about about the, your sculpture of the Ennis Diamond Puka was that, um, you know, it doesn't ha- it didn't represent or it didn't. There's no expression of it in the town, mm. tradition of it in the town. But there are no. There Which are, is true enough. Yeah, in the sensible, there there are no. There's Puka, plenty in Clare, but not in there the are, There are, but the Puka, even as a figure, doesn't ever really enter the town mm. or any any sort of town. But there are a good deal of place names around the country that, that bear, bear his name, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the most. Um, that's where the Puka interface with Irish culture most place names. Place names. I would say. Yeah. Like yeah. a lot of these, the. The Puka carrying a lad and lip, leaping over a place. Like the that's why the gear on the cliffs is then explained as... Yeah, and Puka and stuff. I mean, yeah. that's common. I'd say that's more common even than the, than the stories, you know. Yeah, there are, maybe there's a forgotten story. There are, there are a good few versions around that you find, but I'll just, I'll just, this is Patrick Weston's choice. It says, The Puka is an odd mixture of merriment and malignity. His exploits form the subject of innumerable legendary narratives, and every literary tourist who visits our island seems to consider it a duty to record some new story of this capricious goblin. Under the name of Puck, he will be recognised as the merry wanderer of the night who boasts that he can put a girdle round about the earth in 40 minutes, and the genius of Shakespeare has conferred on him a kind of immortality he never expected. There are many places all over Ireland where the Puka is still well remembered, and where though he has himself forsaken his haunts, he has left his name to attest his former reign in terror. One of the best known is Polifuca in Wicklow, a wild chasm where the Liffey falls over a ledge of rocks into a deep pool, to which the name properly belongs, signifying the pool or hole of the Puka. There are three townlands in County Clare, and several other places in different parts of the country with the same name. They are generally wild, lonely dells, caves, chasms in rocks on the seashore, or pools in deep glens like that in Wicklow, all places of a lonely character, suitable haunts for this mysterious sprite. The original name of Puckstown in the parish of Mosstown in Louth and probably of Puckstown near Artane in Dublin was Pullafuca, of which the present name, in an incorrect translation, Boherafuca, Boher, a road, four miles north of Roscrae in Tipperary, must have been a dangerous place to pass at night in days of old. Cargafuca, the Puka's rock, two miles west of Macroom, where on top of a rock overhanging the Slan stand the ruins of McCarthy's castle, is well known as the place when Daniel O'Rourke began his adventurous voyage to the moon on the back of an eagle, and here for many a generation the Puka held his ancient solitary reign and played pranks which the peasantry will relate with minute detail. So, kind of Joyce carries on. But yeah, he carries on, he's often found lurking in raths and lisses and fairy forts. Uh, and accordingly, there are many old forts through the country called Lissafuca and Rathfuca, which have in some cases given names to townlands. In the parish of Kilcolman and Kerry are two townlands called Rathfog on the ordnance map, and Rathpook in other authorities, evidently Rathfuca, the Puka's Rath. 
Sometimes his name is shortened to Pook or Puck, as for instance Castle Pook, the Goblin's Castle, a black, square, stern-looking old tower near Donnerail in Cork, in a dreary spot at the foot of the Ballyhowra Hills, a fit place, as fit a place for the Pooka as could be conceived. This form is also found in the name of the great moat of Clafook in Queen's County, uh, in a rental book in the Earl of Kildare in 1518, the stone or stone fortress of the Puka, and according to O'Donovan, the name of Plu Pluck near Nace in Kildare is a corruption, a very vile one indeed, of the same name. So, and it's interesting as well, even George talks about how he's fled lots of these haunts, but, but leaves this kind of echo in the landscape mm. in, in the form of these places. I, I like the, um, the merriment and malignity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, it is. It is an odd mixture of merriment and malignity. It is. It's a good way. And, and it's, even then, it's, it's, it's a good way of, of capturing, I suppose, the essence. Shakespeare um, in Midsummer Night's Dream mentions book, and it's just, again, it's the same kind of theme, same idea. Um, I'll follow you, I'll lead you about around through bog, through brush, through brake, through briar. Sometimes a horse I'll be, sometimes a hound, a hog, a headless bear, sometime a fire. And neigh and bark and grunt and roar and burn like horse, hound, hog, bear, fire at every turn. Mm. Again, it's, it's Dionysian. It's a yeah, it, 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 chaotic. chaotic kind of um, energy of the natural world or the shadowy aspect of the human character itself. Or what do you make of the, um, the shape-shifting characteristic? Because I was, I was thinking as I um, surveyed the, the accounts that the shape-shifting could just be um, sim- simply discrepancies between the stories, like here he's a goat, here he's a pig, here he's a, an eagle. But um, often he's described as a shapeshifter, and and they are shapeshifters in folklore. Do you do you, do you, like how do you uh, Where, interpret that? that? Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I suppose it does. It speak to the the unfixed nature of his character. There's a malignancy. There's merriment. There's humor. There's mischief. There's danger. Um, is it a tr- an attempt to kind of embody or give boundary to the differing? I don't know, kind of more chaotic or bestial impulses of man well, he's as expressed not, yeah, he's, in nature. He's not defined, and so that's a... It's always an ill-defined kind of... And even the idea of the shadow itself as an archetypal form is just maybe the the opposite of the persona in a way, and it, but it can take multitude, a multitude of different shapes. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I, I was drawn to that idea particularly um, because it's a... I mean, it's it's like a it's a dreamlike characteristic. Yeah, it essentially, and even if you look at like Deneen's dictionary is another good example where you have, have a listing here. If we take say the the different expressions or, or that where where the word appears, so puka it can refer to the following: a pouch, a, a budget, a little bag, puka pell, an inedible egg shaped fungus, a puka pile, a puka hobgoblin or bogey, a sprite or a ghost, a snail, a surly fellow, jack of the lantern, the sprite of darkness. A puka nismare is the blackberry sprite, supposed to contaminate blackberries at the approach of winter. Puka shantana, a grumpy old fellow. Um, a fairy. Uh, Kurapuka, stinkhorn fungus. Kasha puka, a large tree fungus. Merikon puka, a variety of fungus. Kyan puka, a bogey head, a gargoyle. Kyan naiha puka, a toy mask. Kodublishan puka, uh, black as the puka, a bogey head and a stick, and so on. And then Deneen glasses at Old Norse pookie or imp. Mm. A black dog as well. Something. Yeah. So so and then there's this idea like, well, you know, is it from old Irish goblin or sprite? Is it a Germanic borrowing from old Norse pookie, a fairy spirit? I want to read a showing account here that I thought was interesting. Um, that like so, some of the accounts we see in Ireland, 
show the puka as a kind of ancestral or as, as a house spirit basically mm. as, as as a figure sometimes who helps bringing in the harvest as a figure who protects castles and, and landed estates but this is from linked to certain families or linked just? to certain families in Leinster in particular so associated with slain castle um, where else let me see hold on a moment kind of drowning under different bits of paper here so um, in the province of Leinster, this is Dacian Branagh in, in uh, the journal Folklore from 1993. And he has an article, The Puka, a multifunctional Irish supernatural entity. In the province of Leinster, the Puka is usually visualised as a man, a guardian of castles and big houses. This tutelary figure would appear to have been imported from Britain or France. The widespread use of the word puck, however, would indicate an English origin. One of the school's manuscripts, for example, mentions the word in connection with mushrooms. So we mentioned mm. that with Deneen a moment ago. The whole place beside the trees, this is a quote, is covered with nettles and weeds and big puck mushrooms. It is said that there are fairies to be seen beside the tree every night. Not very far away in the parish of Hoth, um, we have an account of the character, the tutelary character of Hoth Castle. Blackjack or Puck is supposed to be a little black dwarf. He guards the castle and lives in it. Only the Hoth family ever saw him. If anyone else sees him, they die and never live to hmm. tell the tale. He goes about the castle and the grounds and makes queer noises to frighten people away. People say the owners made up this story about Puck to frighten them away from the castle. Here's now carrying on in the article. Traditionally, Puck is the guardian of Slain Castle. A few years ago, I asked the present owner and occupant if he knew anything of the Puck tradition. He admitted to being completely ignorant. Recently, the castle was badly damaged by fire. Nobody mentioned Puck in print or pub gossip. Yet in the late 30s, a rich tradition surrounded the slain house spirit, which usually was reported as being in the form of a dog and occasionally of a small horse. Much of the tradition is recorded in the school's manuscripts in which we are told that Puck lived in a place called the Glen, situated between Slane Castle and Bow Park on the north side of the Boyne. This was known as Puck's Hole, again, like Joyce mentioned this idea mm. again. Uh, a term used in place names in Ireland, England, Wales, Flanders and Denmark. Puck, we are told in this account, could change his shape at will. He could be recognised at once by the chain he wore. He had the reputation of taking people for long journeys on his back. Usually he was seen as a rather big dog. So that's in, in parts of Leinster. There are other versions of that as well. Then this is a book called The Tradition of Household Spirits by Claude Lecouteau. This is a lovely book published on Inner Traditions a few years back and sent to me by a friend in, in, in the US. And in this, I just thought it was fascinating. It's the question of household spirits. And this is an account from, from discussing um, traditions regarding these spirits in Lithuania and Latvia. And it calls them the Eidfaris, called Pukis in some mm. region of Lithuania. And Pukis in Latvia is an aerial and more often zoomorphic creature, whether it is good or evil. When it travels through the air, it takes the form of a red poker, a trail of fire or a shooting star, which makes it similar to the Hungarian Lidrak. It is born when a man urinates in the moonlight and once he goes back home, has sexual relations with his wife. It can be brought like it can be bought like a lump of coal and is hard to get rid of. Algirdus J. Grimas cites the following events. This is the retelling of a misfortune which happens to one farmer who returned who, returning home, finds under the wild pear tree a little black chick drenched and trembling from the cold, and feeling pity for it, he brings it home. The chick soon manifests as an Eidvaris or a Pupis, and he starts to carry off the potatoes, grain and coins. The farmer, a god fearing man, doesn't know how to rid himself of the Eidvaris. Meanwhile, the people would see how at night a glowing pillar would descend behind the farmer's hut and start to gossip that he keeps that that it keeps the devil. The entire community finally decides that the man must move from the house, leaving the Apirus in it. 
Then he sold everything, crops, animals, whatever he could do without, and he bought himself a place a mile away and moved there. When he was hauling the last wagon load and there was nothing left in the cottage, he set fire to all four corners of the cottage. Burn, you rascal. I will get my money back later for the field. Other examples then, like the spirit familiar, the Advirus or the Pucus, obeys its owner and is the master of the money that comes back. The German traditions call this money uh, Hektaler, which literally means hedge thalers, with the hedge reflecting the notion of the marvellous and the supernatural, for it is the place where spirits dwell. Um, so it goes on basically describing like, mm. it's the equivalent of this, this figure that uh, sometimes, I suppose, helps with the harvesting, in this case is kind of unwittingly brought into the home. But I thought and it was fascinating. Like, um, like uh, Chinese lines or, um, uh, you know, gar- gar- or like the, the gargoyles or these kind of grotesque spirits, yeah. but they're on your side. They're on your side. If yeah. you can, I don't know, uh, propitiate them or satisfy yeah. them or whatever. Like, here's another piece from Le Couteau, a different book, um, Encyclopedia of Norse and Germanic Folklore, Mythology and Magic. And in it, there's an entry on Puki, Danish Puga, Norwegian and Swedish Puga. Small demon of folk belief. He is sometimes a dwarf, sometimes a revenant, sometimes a devil that haunts the latrines. He can be found in all the Germanic lands, and Shakespeare featured him as Puck at Oberon's side in A Midsummer's Night's Dream. He has been conflated with the Nis, a place spirit, as is evident in the name Nispuk, and he has also been conflated with dwarves. In 1598, a spirit called Puck lived in the Franciscan monastery in Schwerin, Germany, and rendered all kinds of services. For his wages, he asked for a multicolored frock with small bells before disappearing. Oh. So you have, in all of these accounts, you were saying about the, the sense of him being shape-shifting. Is it just this question, different variants? His shape his shifting, that nature is, is, is built into this kind of figure in all of these accounts across Europe. Mm. Sometimes this, sometimes that, sometimes a light, sometimes a dwarf, sometimes a dog. So I think it speaks, like you're saying, to this this mixture of um, of these different kind of chaotic forces. That, yeah, that it, it, it does say trickster, because you can't even, if you can't trust somebody's form, what can you trust? Yeah. And then for as a sculptor, that was um, put me in a difficult uh, position, because if you're trying to render, like say the puka appears as a horse or he appears as a dog, and you sculpt that dog or, or horse. I mean, that just looks like a dog or a horse to people. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that's how he kind of appears in the in the folk tales. He's uh, he's as a as a say for example a horse, but he's one that talks to like Daniel O'Rourke for example. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't really um, well if I did render it as a horse, it would just look like a horse, whether yeah. I called it a pook or not. So I made this kind of um, horse man hybrid, and Eddie Lennon. Um, uh, pointed out like insightfully i thought that it was it it was a kind of a, a greek way of um or more like a classical way of interpreting that and you wouldn't necessarily find like you won't find in the irish folklore an account of a a, a man's body with a horse's mm-hmm. head that's just it's not a traditional expression like you find an artist in that way but i suppose that's the difficulty of rendering something in in sculpture well that was, that it was is my referencing solution. the shape-shifting nature of the yeah the i call it an irish centaur yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there are, I mean, th- there's a few, like, I suppose to go back even to, to, to Ennis Diamond in particular, like, it's, a, I suppose, on the one hand, you have a sort of discomfort with, to go back to, like, Nigel Pennock's quote about the monster, the scene that reveals, that demonstrates, but in quite an uneasy way. There's mm. a sense that, that, um, that maybe people are uncomfortable with this. Then there's also a certain tension, I think, between like you mentioned, the latte drinkers or whatever versus the pint drinkers, a kind of uh, urban-rural 
divide maybe between um, pe- people maybe who feel like this is the being put down by the by the church or local politicians versus uh, people in the area who feel like they haven't been consulted about it and so on. Do you think it's more a question about official culture versus community and how we commemorate and and you know maybe the commodification of aspects of tradition or consuming aspects of tradition versus people feeling not represented or involved in it or something like that? Well, I don't know if it's anything as high-minded as um, rejecting the consumerization of, of traditional culture. I think it is that idea that um, so, some people in the locality uh, have basically a, ba- a, a sort of bad relationship with the with the authorities. With the local and authority. Like there's been there's long-standing gripes about traffic and um, if you if you were reading up about the controversy, like quite a bit of it was about bins and planning uh, and public and, toilets and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so it's obviously the puka is kind of to an extent caught caught in the crossfire, and uh, mm. yeah, I mean wh- wh- how it ends up, God only knows. But mm-hmm. um, it's a it's a bit, it was a little bit of a like a summer silly season story um, by the media. Yeah, immediately after the the lockdown, I think people were sick sick to death, and they were looking for something mm. utterly ridiculous. Mm. And then my horse said its statue came along, and um, they ran with that for a, a while. And I mean, they're the in fairness, the papers are reluctant to give it up. There was just last month there was a, a journalist he um, used a, the official or what do you call it, a public information, you know, the public freedom uh, of information, freedom of information. And he got a hold of the correspondence between myself and the Clare County Council. Mm-hmm. Um, and like there was not like I was sweating bullets to check if I had I had said that an incendiary, but it was just um, me chickening out of an interview with uh, Claire Byrne and uh, on, ca- the on ca- G, on yeah, radio one. No, on 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 TV. Oh, sorry. Because um, yeah. uh, they were going to say it was sort of say, looking just to be, setting up for conflict. Well, it was a bit of a Jeremy Kyle scenario, um, and I, I didn't want to get into that. But uh, and then. Um, there was just the council saying we we may just uh, let let it cool off for a while, um, so there was nothing too bad in it, but it was um, just uh, it just shows you how what interest there is into it. Well, it's definitely resonated with people, like, and I think some of it speaks to when I was looking into it. This the the, the sense that I got was rightly or wrongly a feeling of people in the area feeling unheard by a, a process. You know mm. what I mean? And in 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 Clare, like the West, like Kerry or wherever, there's people moving there not from the locality mm-hmm. and you know changing the nature of the character change, of the changing area changing nature um, so at the, at the one like I'm from the country myself I know like how uh, people feel I don't know browbeaten and condescended to by mm-hmm. the capital that's that's fairly common and mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's often the case and a lot but, of the support came from outside the idea was that there were um, it was seen I think people from outside the area who were yeah I mean sure every, every county in Ireland um like the Limerick people were delighted with it. The Cork people were delighted with it because you know it's laughing at your neighbour. What could be what could be more more fun than that? But then, in fairness, there was lots of people from Clare, people from Ennis, um, you know, like saying, uh, "I don't see what the problem is," and people from Ennis Diamond. But then, whether those people are, you know, blow-ins, as you might say, is mm-hmm. is just it's one of those things. It's like any of these. Uh, controversy it becomes something for people to hang their hobby horse upon um, and like I was uh, you know I did I taught I taught the 
you know, the priest probably put his foot in it, but I didn't like the anti-clerical tone of... Well, it's the thing. easiest thing in the world to do, like to kind of, you know, bash the church or make it into this very uh, narrow, stereotypical or, or easy kind of narrative to kind of yeah, pop, no, pop up and knock down from afar, you know? Yeah, and I, I it was... Um, yeah, and I, like there was a the, this pagan newspaper from... What would you call it? A Wicca, like a, mm-hmm. a witch, a witch um, journal in in uh, England. They did a story about, it and I was like, you know, between the priest giving out and the mm-hmm. the witches um, saying they're all far. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if that's help I need. But um, yeah, and I I don't see. Um, it seems like it's not part of Irish tradition either. This this anti-clerical this thing that p- puts um, uh, Christianity antagonistic towards the folklore and paganism mm-hmm. because they really got on like a house on fire for most of the most of the 19th century as in like there was spheres where um say the banshee or example but, yeah or but, like saint bridget like yeah, if, perfect if, example. if she, people said the, the the puka is pagan i mean so saint bridget she's yeah, basically breasts breast the the femoran uh, king yeah his yeah, yeah. agricultural goddess wife yeah and those but you, find, you find that ever these threads form a tapestry that transcends their own cultural context in many ways so yeah that is an interesting kind of dynamic in a way but it's definitely struck a nerve like one of the things i found fascinating um that you thought about it was that the how it's entered into tradition the different responses to it in the sense of the songs like mm. the protest song mm. um, you have a couple of these that were played well it's like it's like the it's it's now like there is a puka venice time in there as of this year like mm-hmm. it's not like um folklore is you know delineated after 1948 we stop with folklore mm-hmm. you know it's it's an ongoing process and you know the, like flan o'brien was reinventing the the puka in the mid mid 20th century and it's going to continue mm-hmm. continue into the 21st and so i mean hopefully it's given the the old horse a bit of a a, a bit a bit new lease of life yeah 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 um I want to play one of these first. This is from this is from singer Frank Callery. And so this is a kind of, I suppose, this is in the position of the foresight. He's writing this mm. in, in support of the Book of Venice. And this time. was in the, when the, the story broke, this came out. This came out. With a bunch of other stuff. So this was like part of the, the, the madness at its peak. Okay. <laughs> right. quite good. okay. Don't get ahead of yourself. Or they leave your great art on the shelf. The priest and the weak politician who voted the pukas for ditching. They're afraid of his mane and his tail and his face that has made him go pale and the size of his head that won't fit in the bed from the altar the poor who was read. But in Ennis Diamond I'm hoping to meet This marvellous puka who gladdened the street With the stride and the curl of his curvaceous toe And the smile of his eye that would make a heart glow The hearts of the people who love to say no Avengers and zealots like Simon With a down on the puka, a down on the puka The puka of old Ennis Diamond yeah, so, so Bob Dylan eats your heart out. Yeah. <laughs> that's Frank Callery, the Puka Venice Diamond. And then, amazingly as well, like in, in response to that, there's been a song, so there's the Puka Venice Diamond, and then there's also the Ennis Diamond Puka, mm. um, by Enda Haran down in Ennis Diamond. And 
This is from the other side then, so I'll play this. This is good crack as well. Puka, which is a pretty savage tune in fairness to it but it's interesting those two two responses to this issue whatever um, well and en- this says there we weren't asked so that's kind of the, that's become the where the the I guess the the argument has moved on to as opposed to the qualities of the sculpture it's kind of um, a sense that this wasn't communicated yeah this, this idea about consultation and stuff and I mean I, I don't know the ins and outs of it from people living uh, in Ennis Diamond but I do know how public uh, sculptures are made and how they are made are uh, through public tenders so those are uh, the brief would be uh, published like on visual artists um, Ireland website and other places that like sculptors and painters would um, would would read every week Mm. and that was the case here and then there was like a a public um, a site visit where the the engineer spoke about the the site what they wanted in it and you know that's on youtube it's, it's you can see it it's been it's there been up, yeah. there since october and in it he's very clearly describing that they want something they're they're rebuilding they're building a new bridge in ennis diamond they're trying to fix the traffic and they want something that's going to make ennis diamond a destination town a place that people don't drive through but a place that they stop and they want something uh, an eye-catching sculpture that's going to you know, some place you'd want to park and take your picture with it. And so this is this is like a matter of public record. But then and then like I won the commission and then people like regular old people, they wouldn't necessarily have uh, be aware of this. Um, no, it just, yeah, there's, there's an issue around communication in general where kind of for better or worse, right or wrong, people will feel that that at maybe a sense of distance or at odds with a local authority maybe and, mm. and it's a bit, its own ability to communicate its own aims and ends which often aren't necessarily maybe understood or expressed or seen by the community at large so there's, yeah, a, there's, then, a, there's a strange tension there between like what is the again the tension between the local authority and how it commemorates in inverted commas or, or whatever um, and people don't like being they, if people think they're being ignored it drives people oh, people there's something worse than feeling unheard yes. yeah definitely yeah. yeah so no i do understand that but um then 
I I don't see where where like where where it'll end up is anyone's guess. It might, um, it might be relocated. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a next month they're relooking into it. But that that's that's a second round of public consultation, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, where, see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. See where it goes. Yeah. Um, like the trouble is that sometimes when there's a controversial sculpture, usually what what ha- has happened is the sculpture has been put up. But in this case, my sculpture hasn't been even cast. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't actually exist yet in bronze. Mm-hmm. So it's a really, um, for me, like, I mean, people um, in Ennis Diamond, whatever they think about, from from my point of view, it's like, it's uh, it's quite agonizing that this this thing I, I worked you went, on. You went that, through the process. That, that I know that is, you know, it's quite a, like, it's one, it's probably the best thing I've ever made. It's like, it's until we get that into bronze, it's um you know it doesn't exist mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. um and so uh, it's it, like it, it's it's a big deal for a, a working sculptor to get a public commission mm-hmm. to have a big piece in bronze and so i i do hope that you know there's been so much publicity about the thing um that if it doesn't go up in Ennis diamond that it'll go up on the um somewhere else there's been mm-hmm. you know various offers about that but like ideally it will go up in where it's intended for i do think it's i do think it's it could could find a home there and it could um bring people to ennis diamond mm-hmm. but uh, at this stage it's not up to me it's mm. up to the people of clare and mm. um, thanks a million for coming in to chat and okay. hopefully people learned a bit more about the puga as like joyce says an odd mixture of merriment and malignity kind of like the story at large really Mm. Um, I want he's, he's definitely enjoying the contract. <laughs> I want to. I want to leave with. There's a tune from Irish tradition called Perth Nabuki, um, which comes from the Blasket, the Blasket Islands, and it was the 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 kind of tradition associated with it was that that one of the islanders heard this on the wind, basically that that, that they heard this tune one night on the Blaskets. Um, and Tony McMahon here is the, the broadcaster and a musician. He's playing it, it's a slow air, but he gives, there's just a nice little description before he plays it on our approach to, and belief in kind of spirits of the natural landscape, basically what I thought it was worth, it's worth kind of um, putting in here before we close. And then uh, following that, there's uh, uh, from Mirishal Dalig, um, from the Blasket, it's kind of Pertirocht Bale, like, um, what do you call it, lilting. He's lilting, mm. the tune of Pert and the um, But I'll leave it there with these two pieces. And, um, like I said, thanks a million for coming to chat and cheers. Best of luck with all your art and work in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In the modern world, one doesn't play a slow air which tries to touch the pulse of an individual who is maybe a bit lonely going through life. And this tune comes from the Great Blasket Island. It's a tune which was brought to us, brought out of the island by one of the last fiddle players who left there in the early 1960s and is called in the Irish language Portnabuki, which translated means the music of the ghosts. And it's a little piece of music which in a sense shows that in, in Ireland, in this part of Europe, we're not governed by laws and mechanics, that we have the old religions, the old feelings, the belief that rocks and rivers and mountains are inhabited by spirits. They're not just shapes, they're three-dimensional beings often. And I think that tune, in a sense, 
is a lonely way of bringing that out, which is the reason I like to play it.